You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Good morning. Uh, Let's take our Bibles together, turn to John's Gospel, chapter 8. John chapter 8. Let me uh, take a pastoral moment um, to remind you of some important truth. Uh, and reiterate uh, some things that Jace was just sharing. Uh, Many of you are um, fully immersed in uh, our study of the Christian story. Uh, That's the meta-narrative of of Scripture and God's redemptive plan. And I just want to remind you where we are in that, okay? I think it's in seasons like this that we need to be reminded of where we are. Uh, If we were to just very simply in four words, break down the meta-narrative of the scripture, we would say it's creation, disruption or destruction, redemption, and restoration. And we know um, that God is redeeming all things. He's redeeming. He's taking the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he's redeeming it ultimately for his glory and our good. So it's in seasons like this that uh, we need to be reminded of that truth, but along with that, we need to be reminded that there's a day coming, it's a day coming when all things will be restored, and all things that are sad will be untrue, that's restoration, all things will be restored, no more sickness, no more childhood cancer, and more broken families, no, it'll all be restored. Uh, and so it's in the midst of that uh, that we are reminded of who our great God is and why we press into his word today and into his character and, and his nature. Um, I know that many of you are uh, paying attention to all that's transpiring in the Middle East right now. I hope that you're praying for peace, the peace of Jerusalem. You're praying for that region, um, the Uh, The tension, the fighting, all of that uh, in that region is certainly nothing new, uh, but this is different. Uh, It's different. And uh, one of the things I I need you to know is that uh, as you give faithfully and sacrificially and consistently uh, through our church budget and we give to the cooperative program, uh, that enables us uh, to be the hands and the feet of Jesus in those regions. Uh, You may not realize that uh, send relief units are there. Uh, in that war-torn zone uh, with feeding stations and all those things, and much of that is made possible uh, by your giving. And so while we may not be able to be there physically, um, we are there. Uh, And there are even people from Texas uh, in that region right now uh, serving uh, as the body of Christ and uh, uh, bringing relief uh, to the people of that area. I also want to remind you, uh, I'm not going to go into an eschatological a rant or anything like that this morning, uh, but God loves uh, the people of Israel, and God loves the Palestinian. Okay, don't lose sight of that. Um, I, again, uh, there's just a lot to be said about that region, that area. Uh, anytime something like this happens, I get more questions about the end times and prophecy than at any other time. Uh, maybe only second to when um, 
a, a particular politician does or does not get elected, uh, as if God's timetable rests upon the political scene of the United States of America. Um, and so with that, I would say that um, uh, political season is upon us. Uh, and I say that with uh, a, a bit of woe. <laughs> I know some of you, maybe you thrive uh, during these seasons. Uh, I do not. Uh, I'm, I'm always intrigued as I watch the ongoing conversations, if you want to call them that, the debates, uh, how often political opponents resort to personal insult, character assassination, or innuendo when they cannot prevail in an argument using logic and facts. It reminds me of kids on the playground in elementary school, maybe arguing with somebody about whose dad was stronger and my dad can beat up your dad or whatever. And finally, when you like run out of anything with substance, you're like, well, your mama wears combat boots, you know, or something like that. This is ridiculous. Like, where did that come from? (laughs) Well, we see a familiar tactic, um, a similar tactic, actually, from Jesus' Jewish opponents here in this ongoing debate in John chapter 7 and 8. Um, as, as Jesus has advanced his gospel message about himself, the Jewish leaders other, uh, and other opponents have resorted to questions and innuendo and accusation and, and even more. And I remind you that the accusations began rather mildly back in chapter 7, verse 15, when they said he has never studied. Remember that? He doesn't know as much as we know. You know. Then in chapter 7, verse 41, the insult was that he came from Galilee. Uh, And then in chapter 8, verse 13, they accused him of bearing witness about himself, which, uh, you know, they insisted that somehow that invalidated his testimony, which really didn't make sense. Then they started asking him, where's your father? Calling into question his, his parentage and hinting at an illegitimate father. And then they accused him uh, by speculating that he was threatening to kill himself, which was a, a sign of mental instability. And then they ask in frustration, who are you? Who are you? And finally, after a long debate and a series of exchanges, the Jewish opponents are ready to get rid of Jesus. It's becoming more clear. We've seen this escalating throughout these last couple of chapters uh, especially. And so uh, push has come to shove, as the old saying goes. And so they unleash more than now just innuendo and veiled accusations. They come right out with what they think will discredit and dismiss Jesus once and for all. And so that's where we find ourselves in these final verses of John chapter 8. I hope that uh, you'll follow along there as I read. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you'll find it on the screen. We're going to pick it up in verse number 48 of John 8, where it says, The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Like, who do you think you are? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. 
he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So this final section of John chapter 8, I have you noticed, begins with a slanderous accusation. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now I want to remind you that uh, the Jews here uh, refers primarily to the Jewish religious leadership. They are the most, these now are the most serious damaging accusations that the Jewish leadership can bring at this point. Jesus had already challenged them, remember last week, to convict him of any sin, that they might prove his testimony to be unreliable. Of course, they couldn't do so. And they would never be able to do so. And so what they do is they look for two other reasons in their minds why Jesus' testimony could be rejected. And they begin with this racial slur, essentially. You are a Samaritan. You're a Samaritan. Under the rules of Jesus' Jewish culture, Samaritan testimony, I remind you last week we talked about this, women, uh, shepherds, Samaritans, uh, Samaritan testimony could not count in a trial, in a legal proceeding. It was considered uh, it, it should be dismissed. And so what's more, Samaritans were not allowed in the temple. And so by bringing this insult against him, they're trying to not only discredit his testimony, but they're trying to drive him out of the temple. But the insult didn't stick. It wasn't true, and they knew it when they said it. So they're desperate at this point. So then they try another one. You have a demon. You're demon-possessed. Now, perhaps the Jewish leadership threw this one out there because the crowd had said it themselves earlier. And so they're kind of like saying, well, what they said, you know. And they did that in response to Jesus' accusation that they were trying to kill him. But the crowd had just said it out of shock, thinking that perhaps Jesus might be crazy to imagine that anyone was trying to kill him. So it's, it's now been made pretty clear that the Jewish leadership is, in fact, trying to have Jesus arrested and eliminated. But the Jewish leadership now hurls this demon accusation with more focus and with more purpose. Just as the testimony of a Samaritan could be easily discarded, surely the testimony of an insane, demon-possessed maniac could be easily discarded. So we have this slanderous accusation. But I would have you notice next how Jesus responds to that. You ever been in the midst of a kind of a heated conversation, maybe even an argument or maybe you've been witness to one where you felt like the, the temperature was rising. You know how certain people, based upon their uh, demeanor or their temperament or whatever, it's like they, can ju- they just have a special way of adding fuel to the fire. I mean, like their words cut deep, and, and, and they'll take personal insult to a whole other level and those kind of things. And so it's just like, I mean, pretty soon this thing's going to explode because this, this person just keeps throwing fuel on the fire and everything. So you would almost expect that to happen here, but that's not the case. And the reason for that is because Jesus responds in a gracious way. He responds to these insults calmly and reasonably and graciously. doesn't even bother responding to the Samaritan insult. I think because it was obviously groundless, but also partly because he didn't want to reinforce their ugly cultural prejudices. For him to respond as though being called a Samaritan was an insult would have been to defend himself at the cost of joining in this ugly disregard for Samaritans. 
So he, but he does respond to this accusation of having a demon. And he says clearly, I do not have a demon. I do honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the ultimate judge. And so by denying their accusation of having a demon, Jesus puts the weight of evidence back on them. They would have to prove that he did, in fact, have a demon. And so far from being demon-controlled, Jesus insists that everything he is doing is to honor his father. And they are responding to his honoring his father by dishonoring him. Now, what does it say when someone dishonors someone who is honoring God? If Jesus is, in fact, sent by God, represents God, honors God, they are dishonoring him, then what should they expect will happen? They shouldn't expect Jesus to violently defend himself or vigorously seek to vindicate himself. Instead, Jesus is trusting himself to his Father. Not only does Jesus seek to honor his Father, but his Father also seeks to glorify Jesus. It's a very sobering word when Jesus reminds them that the one he honors, the one who seeks his glory, is the ultimate judge. They will stand before him. They will give an account for their insults and their accusations and their dismissal of the one that God had sent to them. And then after responding to their accusation, Jesus rises above the conflict and extends to all a very gracious invitation to get their attention, and to highlight the full truthfulness of what, is, what is, is about to be said, he begins with truly, truly. Those of you who, who have the King James Version of the Bible, it, it typically says verily, verily there. It comes from the word from which we get our word veracity or, or truth. It's, it's, it's emphasized here. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This is the third time that Jesus has extended the call to salvation in this chapter. Remember earlier, Jesus had said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Then he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Now he carries the gospel call one step further, clarifying what it means to have the light of life and to be set free by the Son. Anyone who keeps the word of Jesus, anyone who holds to the truth of who Jesus is and what he gives us in himself will never see death. What does that mean? Well, the response of the Jewish leaders actually helps us understand because they repeat what Jesus said by saying, you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. You know, when you taste something, you experience it in a way that deeply affects you. I I remember vividly, as a kid, the first time that I thought it would be a good idea to get the Hershey's cocoa powder out out of the pantry and put a big spoonful of that in my mouth. Some of y'all have done it, I can tell, okay? And you, you can still remember what that tasted like, right? As, I mean, like, it, it fooled your brain because you're looking at it and the branding looks exactly the same as a Hershey's chocolate bar, right? I mean, it says Hershey's on it. I mean, I take the Hershey's syrup and I squeeze it into a glass of milk and it becomes chocolate milk amazingness, Right? How can this be bad? You pry that little can open, stick the spoon down in there, stick it in your mouth, and you're just like, 
pretty soon there's like this chocolate brown cloud that comes spewing out of your mouth and your nose and everything else. It's awful. You talk about a bitter, bitter experience. Something you'll never do again. Now, it did become convenient a couple of years later when I convinced my younger sister to do the same thing. But, hey, I never said I was perfect, okay? Um, To see or to taste death is to experience the bitter reality of what death brings. Understand this, everyone dies physically, of course, but the real sting of death, the real bitterness of tasting death is the separation from God, from life, from love, from everything good that comes from God in our lives. And Jesus drank the bitterness of death for us in his own death. Enduring separation from his father, being abandoned, alone, cursed, agonizing pain, all the more, so that more than we could even imagine. He drank the bitter cup of wrath and judgment to the bottom, fully taking it into himself so that we will never have to taste or experience such horrors ourselves. For Jesus to offer this gift to those who have been so rude and insulting, so hard-hearted, and so deaf to his word is amazing grace indeed. And yet he does the same thing for us. We sin. We betray. We choose foolishness. We insult him by our cowardice and our callousness, and yet he holds out his life to us again and again. He will not stop offering freedom and life to all who will trust in him, to all who will follow him, to all who will hold to his words as the words of life. It's amazing grace. But that gracious response was met with angry questions. Look at verses 52 and 53. How do they respond to the graciousness of Jesus? Well, with more angry and irrational insults, of course. The Jews said to him, now, now we know, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? Jesus isn't making himself out to be anything here, of course. He is what he is, and that is who he said he is. He is, in fact, greater than Abraham. (laughs) The Samaritan woman, remember, at the well uh, had asked Jesus a similar question back in John chapter 4 when Jesus offered her the living water. Remember, she said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She found out, as as she continued to listen to the teaching of Jesus, that he was, in fact, greater than Jacob. She found the living water that Jesus promised. But these Jewish leaders aren't interested in listening. They don't want to find out who Jesus really is. And so they insult his intelligence by telling him what he already knows, that Abraham died, as did the prophets. And so their rigid literalism here doesn't come from a lack of sincere understanding, but from a refusal to even try to understand what Jesus is saying. And this too is a very common tactic of someone who is losing a debate and who is not interested in truth, but in power. Take the words of your opponents 
And you cast them in the most ridiculous light possible. And in this case, by taking them with this rigid literalness. But since they want to talk about their father Abraham, Jesus takes them up on that and tells them the truth about Abraham and about himself. And he does it in a humble and an honest way. He responds to their ridiculous reaction with humility and honesty. Let's look at it in verses 54 and 56. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you've not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Essentially, Jesus is saying here, I'm not telling you these things because I'm trying to impress you to win your favor or even your support. I'm not trying to make myself anything at all. I am simply telling you the truth. For me to do otherwise would be dishonest and would make me as much of a liar as you are. And so he then tells them the truth about Abraham. He rejoiced to see the day of Jesus. He saw it and was glad. We say, wait a minute. I'm not sure this makes sense. Well, in Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 through 21... God puts Abraham into a deep sleep and shows him a dream of the future. Rabbinical tradition, by Jesus' day, said that Abraham was shown the messianic age. God had promised to Abraham. It was what they were longing for, what they were looking for, and what they were denying in Jesus. Still other Bible scholars then would point to Abraham's overwhelming joy at the birth of Isaac, the child of promise, the beginning of all that God promised to Abraham being fulfilled. Whatever Jesus specifically has in mind here, he says Abraham rejoiced that he would see Jesus' day and was glad. Literally, overjoyed, exceedingly glad. So the overwhelming joy and exceeding gladness of Abraham stands in stark contrast to the angry, accusing, attacking attitude of the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. Then as we close out this chapter... I want you to notice that the vital truth is the final straw. Because the Jewish leaders insist on still taking everything Jesus says with this rigid literalism and not even applying their own interpretive traditions to what Jesus is saying, they deliberately misunderstand him. Rather than think that God might have shown a vision to Abraham, they instead respond by saying, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And yet this is exactly how Jesus anticipated they would respond because their question sets up Jesus' bold and clear declaration perfectly. In today's vernacular, we would say Jesus is owning these guys, right? Yeah, he takes their reference to his age and to Abraham and says back to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Again, to get their attention, to strongly affirm the truth and the importance of what he is about to say. Before Abraham was, I am. This is actually the third time in this chapter that Jesus has said, I am. Don't lose the significance of this. The Jewish leadership apparently missed the significance. This one is unmistakable. Now remember, in verses 23 and 24, Jesus had said, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, 
you will die in your sins. Then in verse 28, Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. In both of those verses, what you need to understand is that the English adds the word He to help the grammar flow properly. But Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, literally, then you will know that I am. But as I said, the Jewish leaders must have missed the deep significance of what Jesus was saying. Perhaps they only thought he meant, unless you believe that I am who I say I am, and you will know that I am indeed the Messiah. No, so to clarify the meaning, Jesus uses the most precise words here. This is critically important. Before Abraham was... I am. It's not even before Abraham was, I was, which would have been a bold enough statement about his pre-existence. But Jesus doesn't just want them to know that he existed before Abraham. He wants them to know, please don't miss this, that he is the great I am. He's using an expression of the name of God that was very familiar to these Jewish leaders. We would say it this way. He was speaking their language. God's covenant name, Yahweh, in Hebrew comes from the Hebrew for I am and is tied to God's revelation of himself. In Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush, there God told Moses, I am who I am. I am the pre-existent, all-sufficient. I mean, I am. And hundreds of years later, God spoke to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am he. Isaiah 43, 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Further, in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 12, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. I've noticed that it's becoming increasingly popular for athletes, particularly, and their faithful followers, to exclaim, I am him. You seen this? Score a touchdown, I'm him. You dunk on somebody, I'm him. Demean your opponent, right? Too small. It's all that kind of stuff, right? I'm him. It's intended to be a cry of a dominant figure. It's supposed to be an expression of euphoric confidence that only occurs when you leave your opposition cowering in fear. The phrase was originally made popular by a rapper named Kevin Gates. It was the title of his second album released in 2019 with H-I-M intended as an acronym for His Imperial Majesty. If that doesn't speak to human pride, I don't know what does. Well, check this out. God says, I am he. I am eight times in Isaiah chapters 40 through 65. In each of these, the he is is a supplied word in our translations. And the expression from God is, I am. I am. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is exactly the same wording as what Jesus says here. 
These words from the Lord through Isaiah were well known to the Jewish leadership in both Hebrew and Greek. And they certainly did not miss what Jesus meant to say. Jesus was saying, I am the great I am. The self-existent one. And the Jewish leaders could not bear to hear this. And if you were there, you can just imagine them just like being aghast with, this is heresy. Sorcery, you know. And what do they do? Pick up stones. We're done. We're going to end this. That was their thought. But it wasn't Jesus' time to die yet. So he hid himself and went out of the temple. It shows that Jesus is completely in control. Regardless of the chaos of, of this time in his life, as his earthly ministry is coming to a close, he is completely in control over who will take his life, when, and how. So what are we saying today? What do we see here? Well, in a sense, what the Jewish leaders did was exactly right. In this sense, they knew that these words from Jesus created an absolute dividing line. The proverbial line in the sand, a clear demarcation over which no compromise was possible. Here was a man who was not a mere teacher of the law, not a mere preacher of righteousness, or even a mere prophet of the kingdom. He said things no one else ever said, things no one else could ever dare to say. I am the light of the world. I am the one who gives you the light of life. Keep my words and you will never taste death. I am the great I am. And Jesus' words here confronted the Jewish leaders with a decisive claim that they could not ignore. They confront us with the very same inescapable claim. It's not even close to being intellectually honest for you to take an ambivalent position toward Jesus. Eh, he was a good guy. He was a good teacher. A prophet. That's really not an option when you consider what he's saying here. It's as C.S. Lewis expressed it in Mere Christianity. He said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. Because a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, and you can t- fall, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him simply being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. And he didn't intend to. When Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, he was either telling the truth or he wasn't. If he wasn't, then we should reject him as a dangerous man. (laughs) But but, but what do we do with his miracles and his, his deep power and his profound love? What do we do with his surpassing wisdom and his remarkable insight into the word of God and reality? The claim is a bold one indeed, but all of the evidence points to the truthfulness of Jesus. 
If Jesus was telling the truth, then he is the Lord, and we must receive his words and worship his holy name and receive from him the light of life and freedom from sin, eternal life. His invitation stands open to you today. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And he says, whoever keeps my words will not see death. Do you believe him? Do you believe him? And will you receive him? If we could together for just a few moments bow our heads and close our eyes together. We've witnessed together over these last several weeks the tension growing in this ongoing dialogue between Jesus and particularly the religious leaders of Jesus' day. At this point, they're clearly utterly enraged. See, throughout this entire conversation, Jesus' Jewish opponents have spoken on a merely human, physical plane while Jesus was seeking to impress on them spiritual truths, which tragically they were unable to receive. And so John, in writing this gospel, highlights the stubbornness, the lack of spiritual understanding of these Jewish leaders, which ultimately would lead to Jesus' lifting up on the cross. I think the most important question in this moment for each of us is, what is your relationship with Jesus? You may be like so many people today who would be quick to say, well, I believe in God, but I'm not so sure about Jesus. I'm certainly not so sure about him being God in the flesh. Will you for just a moment revisit the scene of this dialogue and hear Jesus saying to you, as he said to those religious leaders, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. I offer you freedom. If the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And understand when he said that, he meant you can't free yourself. So you may be here today and you're saying, I'm doing everything I can to free myself, to have spiritual freedom, and to be in a right relationship with God. I'm doing that through my own best efforts, self-righteousness. What an exercise in futility. Because even on our best day, Scripture makes it clear we can't be good enough. So the beauty of the gospel, the great exchange of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless, perfect, spotless Lamb of God, died in our place. That's the gospel in four words, Christ in my place. But until you have turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, you have not taken that step of faith. that's you today, I would invite you to trust him.
grace of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, shines so brilliantly against the dark backdrop of the sinfulness and the brokenness of this world. See, the invitation is clear today. Come to Jesus. It's not about walking an aisle. It's not about shaking a preacher's hand or filling out a card. It's about you within your heart. You don't need to search for for a particular set of words that sound especially biblical. It's just a cry of desperation and acknowledging that you're a sinner and you can't save yourself. So I need a savior. I trust you. It's the beauty of the gospel. Father, we thank you for your word today for our time together here. God, I thank you that in difficult seasons like the one that many of us are experiencing right now, the beauty of the gospel and the amazing grace of God shines so brightly. I thank you that we have a living hope. language of the day is death, you speak life, life, everlasting life through your son, the Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com dot com.